Hello team and welcome back to the Simply Fit Podcast. Today I bring you some incredible news. I have been working on a secret project for the past three or four months now and I now can tell you that the brand new follow along workout channel is live and here. On this YouTube channel, you're gonna find workouts for fat loss, muscle building, improving your cardio health, flexibility, everything is gonna be on there. You're gonna find body weight workouts, dumbbell workouts, kettlebell and resistance bands workouts, all that you can follow along with. And the best part is that it's completely free. They're also around 10 to 20 minutes long, meaning if you're short of time, you can quickly complete an effective workout or you can combine like two or three of them together and complete like a full 45 to 60 minute workout. New workouts will go live on the channel every Tuesday and Thursday and they're gonna be accompanied by an amazing backdrop, which I'm sure you're all gonna enjoy. So if you wanna find the channel, just search Elliot Hassoon into YouTube and you'll find it very easily. And please subscribe. It makes me very, very happy and it helps the channel grow. And feel free to tell your friends, your family, your pets, whoever you want to share this with and let's work out together. Welcome to the Simply Fit Podcast. I'm your host, Elliot Hassoun. In this podcast, I'll be looking at three key questions related to fitness, nutrition, and mindset. I will break these down into information that is easy to understand and actionable so that you can apply it to your life today. This podcast will give you all you need to improve your health and well-being once and for all. So sit back, listen, and most importantly, take action. Hello, beautiful people, and welcome back to episode 47 of the Simply Fit Podcast. I hope you're all having an amazing week so far, and I wanted to say a special hello to all of the new people who are here today. I've seen that we're getting a lot more downloads in the Philippines at the moment. And considering I don't know anyone who lives in the Philippines, that's a pretty awesome feeling. So a huge shout out to you guys. And of course, a huge shout out to everyone who's been here from episode one. Those of you who joined in episode 27 or whenever you found the podcast, it's awesome to have you guys returning to listen week on week. And we currently have listeners in 30 different countries, which is something quite special. So thank you all. And on to today's episode, and we're getting back into the traditional format with our training question, nutrition, and then lifestyle and mindset to wrap up the day. So today we start off with a training question and it is, Elliot, my squat feels uncomfortable and it just sucks. How do I make it better? So the first part I really love about this question is that the person wants to improve their squat. I know so many people in the past that would tell me that their squat sucks, so they simply don't squat. Squats are too painful. I don't want to have big legs. I'm not built for squats. And in some cases, it might be true and okay. Although if it's just muscular pain of squats, you know, just due to the fact that it's heavy and it's just not a pleasant thing to do, I do think you should kind of just suck it up and get on with it. But if you don't want bigger legs and if your anatomy suggests that, you know, other leg exercises may be favorable, then, you know, I get it. But if you want to squat, then squat. If you don't want to, or genuinely it causes more harm than it does good, then you really don't need to if you want strong and developed legs. There's plenty of alternatives and we can touch on that later, but for this individual, they do want to squat. And if you can, I think you should. I believe it's a really, really valuable exercise to have in your repertoire. And it's one of those things that, you know, it's just a cool movement to be able to do as well. I really like the fact that I didn't give up on squats. I made sure that even though that they didn't feel that comfortable for me in the past, I've been persistent and relentless with them. And now they're 
they're in a position where, yeah, they're still uncomfortable, but they are a lot better than they used to be. So I want to get started by talking about a couple of considerations. So the most traditional form of a squat will be the barbell back squat. It's the one that most of us know, but the barbell on our backs, you know, squatting down to the floor. It's typically the one that most of us will think of when I say squat. And what we don't consider is that it's a highly technical movement, probably more technical than people give it credit for. And therefore, if you're a beginner or you're self-taught and your back squat currently feels uncomfortable, you'll want to approach this with caution and you're probably better off getting started with a goblet squat, a split squat, or even a bodyweight squat, or one of the variations that's slightly more regressed. So I want to start with saying that, and I want to start from the very beginning, right? There are two things generally that are going to dictate how good your squat is. The first is your anatomy. The second is your mobility. And I would debatably add your pre-existing strength is also going to dictate that too. But I want to focus on anatomy and mobility for the time being. As we should all know by now, we are built slightly different. We all are when it comes to our bone structures. You know, our limbs are not the same length and, you know, the person sat next to you or your colleague at work, you know, we all know that we're not made in the same way. Some people are taller, some people are shorter, etc. And therefore, if our bones are formed and aligned differently, it makes sense that our squat is going to look slightly different from one another. And even though we're doing the same movement, it is going to look a little bit different from person to person. The next aspect is mobility, right? If we struggle to get low enough to sit down because our muscles are stiff, tight, shortened, whatever word we want to use, this is going to impact our range of motion and our ability to squat effectively. When it comes to anatomy, there is typically four different hip socket shapes that we can have. There can be variations in the way that our femurs are shaped. Those with long femurs relative to their tibia will naturally experience a greater forward lean as they get deep into a squat versus those who have more proportional femur to tibia lengths. They will have to drive their hips and glutes back further to ensure their upper body remains balanced over the center of mass and trying to stay more upright during the squat would be extremely challenging for someone with that structure and perhaps even dangerous. And those with a shorter tibia relative to their femur will usually forward lean as they go deeper into a squat and may feel more effort in their lower back versus their quads to those with a longer tibia lengths. So that's a very, very long way of me saying that before we even consider mobility, there's a lot going on from an anatomical perspective that we probably don't even recognize. Then if we do add mobility on top of this, most of us know that we're not quite as mobile or flexible as we could be. Years of sitting in chairs for eight hours per day, years of bad posture as we're driving or on our devices, years of running without really warming up or cooling down or any sports, in fact, where we didn't really respect our body's needs for flexibility, mobility work, all the recovery work that we should be doing. So to achieve an effective range of motion and a comfortable squat, hip and ankle mobility are incredibly important. If we don't have a sufficient amount of this and we force ourselves into deep squats, we'll likely see the butt wink, which I've spoke about before, where our lower back almost curves over when we hit a certain range. We may find our heels leave the ground as we get deeper into a squat and our center of mass shifts onto our toes and the balls of our feet. This is all extremely common. And before you even put the bar on your back, you'll want to keep these things in mind. And first and foremost, find the optimal position for your anatomy and your current mobility levels. So I'm sure you're now thinking, well, how do I do that, Elliot? And I would say the easiest way, especially if you're doing this on your own, 
is to take a video of yourself while squatting from the front, from the side, from the back, where you can see your hips, you can see your ankles, you can pretty much see the entirety of your body. Take your shoes off, put a light wooden stick or a PVC pipe on your back or something similar. You don't want to use a barbell or something heavy. Um, just use something light that you'll usually find in the gym to mimic as if you have a barbell on your back. And then from there, start filming. You know, Go into the position that's most familiar to you first Take a slightly wider stance, take a closer stance, try pushing your hips further back, see what your ankles do when you hit 90 degrees, see what happens to your back when you go beyond 90 degrees. Like take multiple videos from multiple different angles until you find what's the combination between what's most comfortable for you and what looks the best as well. And then once you identify what the best squat pattern is for you, you may still realize that you've got limited range in those certain areas and potentially feel still feel a ray of discomfort. And this is where your flexibility and mobility work will have to come in. You might find the position that best suits your anatomical structure, but unless you are doing flexibility and mobility work to help you hit those certain range of motion that your body is capable of, that you've lost over the years of poor posture and sitting down or any potential injuries in the past, you've got to try and do your best to regain some of that flexibility and mobility. So you'll want to throw in some dynamic movements for your session that help you get into that good squat position. You'll want to do stretches outside of your session that will help you develop a more expensive range of motion. And you can't expect these things to change overnight either. It's going to take time but for as long as you squat you should always have a form of mobility and flexibility work in your repertoire that's a absolute statement from me you always need these in your repertoire if you're going to demand your body to go through these patterns with weight on your back regularly you need to respect its needs for recovery and accessory work and i honestly think that this will solve most people's squatting problems however i do want to go a little bit deeper and I do feel that going back to basics could be really helpful too. So instead of back squats being the first movement you do, you might instead say, I'm going to do four to six weeks of split squats. Then next, I'm going to program in four to six weeks of front foot elevated split squats to help with my range and see if I can get deeper. Then I'm going to go into four to six weeks of goblet squats, four to six weeks of box squats, four to six weeks of barbell paw squats. And then I'm going to focus on back squats. All of these will have a carryover and bulletproof your regular barbell back squats. So we've covered the anatomy considerations, mobility considerations, and regressing the movement. The next thing I think about is frequency. As I mentioned in the last podcast, practice doesn't make perfect. Perfect practice does make perfect. So if you want to start nailing your squat technique, start squatting two to three times per week and get really, really good at it. Let's put it this way. If you're squatting once a week for four sets of 10 reps, let's say, in 10 weeks, you would have done 400 reps of squats. If you're squatting three times a week for four sets of 10 reps, in 10 weeks, you would have done 1,200 reps of squats. I don't think that one needs any further explanation, but if you want to get better at doing something, do it more and do it well. Squatting more than once a week isn't fun. <laughs> in a lot of my training blocks at the moment, I'm squatting twice a week. It's not easy, but my squat technique and my comfort with the movement is genuinely improving due to the frequency. You know, just putting that bar on my back, putting myself in that position, getting comfortable because I know what it feels like and what it should feel like and what it looks like just due to the fact that I'm doing it over and over. So the next consideration I want you guys to recognize is weight changes things. So I'll use my personal experience here again to illustrate the point. So in the past, up to 120, 130 kilos 
of a back squat looked absolutely fine. Like not amazing, but it looks good enough. There wasn't anything that was alarming. There wasn't any major red flags. Then when I started approaching 140 kilos, I would squat and my knees would often cave inwards as I came from the bottom position. And as much as I drive them outwards, it just wasn't happening. And we have to remember that it's not just our quads, our glutes, our hamstrings that are involved in the squat. It's our abductors, our adductors, our glute med, our core. You know, all of these things are involved. There's a lot of other different muscle groups and, you know, smaller muscles in and around those bigger ones that we're using that might not be strong enough. And if these aren't strong enough, once you reach a certain point with the weight that you're lifting, your squat will start to suffer. And my adductors were a problem for years and years, and it was immensely frustrating for me. This is where accessory work, specifically in those areas, should come in to support the improvement of your squat. So there's two more things I want to mention here. The first is, what are you squatting for? For years and years, I trained in a bodybuilding style. And if you're ever going to compete in bodybuilding, no one is ever going to ask how much you lift on stage. They're only looking at your physique. And therefore, if you couldn't squat with the best range of motion in the world, but your quads look good, then it's zero problem whatsoever. They're not judging your ability to lift. They're judging the look of your physique. However, now I'm training in more of a powerlifting style. And whether I'll compete in the future or not is something I'm not really considered properly yet. But if I do, for a lift to be successful, you have to hit a certain depth on your squat and your bench press as a matter of fact. And therefore it's essential for me to hit those ranges if I wanna do well in the sport in the future. So it's always worth asking yourself, what am I squatting for? If it's just for lower body development, you just wanna have some nice quads, some nice glutes, and you've got a good amount of range, but you can't quite break 90 degrees without a huge challenge, it might not even be worth you trying to get into that range. It might even be safer for you to just hit about 90 degrees and really focus on contracting your quads and getting as much out of that movement as possible. And finally, if you've gone through everything I've just mentioned now, you can also try programming variants of the movement that force you to tackle your weaknesses. If you're struggling to get out of the bottom position of a squat, poor squats may become your best friend. If you struggle to get the bar off the floor on a deadlift, then deficit deadlifts may be the way to go. If you struggle to maintain control as the bar comes towards your chest on a bench press, slow eccentrics may be something you want to utilize. You can easily manipulate these movements to focus on your weak points and have these in your program for weeks and months at a time. There's so many different variations when it comes to the squat. So I think that was a pretty comprehensive segment on what you might want to do if your squat is uncomfortable and it sucks. And to be honest, a lot of these principles can be applied to your other main lifts too. So go through all the things I mentioned today. And of course, stay patient and practice regularly. Happy squatting people. And on to the next one. Oh, this is a good one. Here we go. Elliot, do calories matter? People, of course, calories matter. I should just wrap this up with a simple yes but you know me, I have to dive into why the question was asked in the first place and explore the different nuances and arguments. And I think there is a lot to dig into here. So you may have heard a lot of people talking recently about the lack of importance of calories. And they're saying something along the lines of, if you eat the right foods, that is the most important thing. You don't have to worry about calories. And although the principle of this is actually pretty sound, disregarding calories entirely would not be my favorite approach whatsoever. So let's start with the absolute basics. To create a calorie deficit, we need to expend more than we consume. To create a calorie surplus, we must consume more than we expend. 
If we want calorie maintenance, we need to find an equilibrium between the two. This is fundamentally how weight loss takes place, how weight gain takes place, or how weight maintenance comes about. Of course, there are an abundance of things that can impact this. I've seen people who are in a calorie deficit but do struggle to lose weight due to high stress, poor sleep, poor nutritional choices, hormonal issues, etc., among many more, in fact. So if calories are the predominant currency in which weight loss and weight gain is achieved, then why are people such as Dr. Mark Hyman and many others are speaking about the fact they don't matter at all? And I appreciate there are a lot of people who are saying this, but Mark Hyman, for example, has a lot of influence and his article is the top one on Google. And therefore we are, sorry, not sorry, but we are ganging up on him today. So the typical answer to the question as to why he's creating an article like this is unfortunately the root of every issue in health and fitness and most issues as a whole, to be completely honest. And it's the extremists, those who said that a calorie is a calorie. Doesn't matter where the calories come from, they're all the same. And I've discussed this before. This is what led to the craze of the IIFYM approach, which I discussed in detail on episode 20. And actually, I was a very big fan of this approach in the past as well. It was the welcomed breakaway from the bodybuilding lifestyle and the one-size-fits-all approach to weight loss that we all believed was the only way that it could be attained. In the past, it was all about cutting carbs like entirely. Or if we were part of the bodybuilding community, it was eating chicken and white fish and broccoli and rice four times a day. And that was literally the only way known to get in shape, which is obviously very extreme and incorrect, of course. Uh, but at that time, it was kind of the norm and it was the only knowledge we really had. And then all of a sudden, the IIFYM approach comes in and the pendulum swings in completely the other direction. And now all of a sudden you can achieve your weight loss goals whilst eating pizza and donuts as long as your calories are dialed in and your macros are on point. And although there is some degree of truth in this, it doesn't really factor health into the equation. And if you've heard me speaking about IFYM, if you go onto YouTube and you look at my videos from like 2013, 14, 15, or whenever it was, you would have heard me talk about the 80-20 rule or the 70-30 principle at the more extreme end, potentially, suggesting that, you know, if you use this approach, 80 or 70% of your foods on a day-to-day -day basis or week-to-week -week basis come from nutrient-dense whole foods. And then obviously the other 20 to 30% can come from whatever you want, as long as it fits within your daily requirements, which to this day, I still think is a pretty good approach, especially for those of the general population. And of course, could you achieve more health benefits by opting for those nutrient-dense foods 90 to 100% of the time? Absolutely. But as much as most people do truly care about their health, I expect the majority of us want to get away with doing the minimum to ensure our health stays in check. And then the rest of the time, we just want the freedom to do what we want. I'm sure most of us are nodding along, right? So calories do matter. We can't deny the law of thermodynamics. However, I've said it once and I'll say it again. To me, a calorie is not just a calorie. And Mark Hyman does have a decent article on his website that I'm going to read a segment from. He compares a soda to a broccoli. So he compared soda to broccoli and he compared a certain soda which had 750 calories in, which is essentially 100% sugar, which most of them tend to be um, about 186 grams or 46 teaspoons of sugar, which most people will actually drink in one sitting or one day. And what he mentioned is that your gut quickly absorbs the fiber-free sugars in the soda, fructose and glucose. The glucose spikes your blood sugar, starting a domino effect of high insulin and a cascade of hormonal response that kicks bad biochemistry into gear. The high insulin increases storage of belly fat, increases inflammation, raises triglycerides, and lowers HDL. 
It raises blood pressure, lowers testosterone in men, and contributes to infertility in women. He does go into more detail in what it does to your appetite, brain chemistry, and liver, but I think at this stage you guys get the point. And then he compares broccoli, and firstly he mentions that you probably wouldn't be able to eat 750 calories worth of broccoli, which is pretty accurate based on how much broccoli I know I can consume. It just simply wouldn't fit in your stomach. But assuming you could, what would happen? And the first thing he mentions is they contain so much fiber that very few calories would actually get absorbed. Those that would, would get absorbed very slowly. There'd be no blood sugar or insulin spike, no fatty liver, no hormonal chaos. Your stomach would distend, which it doesn't with soda, Bloat from carbonation doesn't count, sending signals to the brain that you were full. There would be no trigger of the addiction reward center in the brain. You'd also get many extra benefits that optimize metabolism, lower cholesterol, reduce inflammation, and boost detoxification. The phytonutrients in the broccoli boost your liver's ability to detoxify environmental chemicals. And again, there's more, but you guys get the point at this stage. So this is a compelling argument, and I totally agree but I don't believe that it gives us the right to disregard calories entirely. For me, this is almost like saying, ignore money. Just focus on having good spending habits and having a budget in place. Good spending habits, a budget, you know, all of those things are going to be very, very helpful, extremely helpful, in fact. But I want to see what's going in and out of my bank. One of the most common things that I hear from people is that they eat healthy. And when they actually tell you what their diet is, they do, but they don't realize that the avocado toast they're having is 800 calories. Their oat latte is 200 calories. Their salad at lunch is 500 calories. Their snack of nuts and fruit is 300 calories. Their healthy home-cooked evening meal is 700 calories. And their gluten-free dessert is 400 calories. And if you did the math whilst I was just talking, that was almost 3,000 calories, which is usually way above most people's required intake for the day. So if you take the advice to ignore calories and focus on what you're eating and just eating the right foods you're probably still going to be overweight, which is the case with so many people I speak with. And what about the distribution of your macronutrients? Most of us don't have enough muscle on our frame, partly because we're not weight training, or if we are, it's not as effective as it could be. But really the reason for the most part is that we're not getting enough protein consumed. How are we supposed to know if we're not getting enough protein if we're not looking at the calories or the macros we're consuming. What about those who haven't quite mastered intuitive eating or have quite a large appetite? Don't get me wrong, I can eat intuitively, but if I'm only eating healthy and someone puts a healthy plate of sweet potato fries in front of me and I'm not worried about calories, I could easily eat a thousand calories worth. And most of us can, to be completely honest. And what if you've had really poor sleep? What if you were really stressed and you weren't drinking enough water? Your appetite and cravings would be sky high. You're not acknowledging calories. You eat all the food you feel your body needs because you're getting all these cravings and everything. I guarantee you're going to end up eating 30% more calories than you should be at a minimum. Honestly, I do believe it's a logical to disregard the most important currency when it comes to food. And even though I don't personally think that a calorie is a calorie... And even though I agree with a lot of what Dr. Mark Hyman says, the fact that his article is titled Why Calories Don't Matter is misleading. And even though he's trying to help people here, the title is just the extreme end of the problem he's trying to point out. And as I've said many times before, the extremes or a singular focused approach in health and fitness 
is never the route forward. So to conclude, calories do matter and it's helpful to know what's going into your body. A calorie is not just a calorie. The makeup of that calorie is incredibly important. A combination of healthy eating habits and some tracking of your food to get an understanding of what's going into your body is the more logical and rational choice. Case closed. I'm moving on from there. So let's get on to the final topic of the day. Elliot, can I take a break from exercising and eating healthily for perhaps, you know, a few weeks, maybe during the summer, for example? So my first question to you is why would you want to? How do you feel when you're eating while and exercising regularly? How do you feel when you're not, in fact? I feel that once you get into the groove of regular exercise and eating healthily, you genuinely begin to crave it after a few days off. If I haven't done exercise or like dedicated exercise in three to four days, I start to get a bit restless. If I don't eat well for three to four days, I start to feel bloated, slow, and just generally a bit off, to be completely honest. But that's me. And I know that some people will relate to this, but this show and this question isn't about me. So let's explore this question. I really do believe that it begins by us looking at what phase of the journey that you're in. I briefly touched on diet breaks in episode 41, which was the episode on the five signs you might need to stop dieting. And I mentioned that if you've been dieting for an extended period of time, it could be worth looking at a diet break, which is essentially a planned period of time where you would take, you know, a time frame of one to two weeks generally and increase your calories across that period and relax the counting of macros so closely too. So some people may choose to continue tracking calories, but most won't. And the idea is to take a bit of a mental refresh. Uh, so you can gain some psychological benefits, but also some physiological ones too, in terms of metabolic adaptations, regain some energy, and potentially will help with sleep and hormone function too as well. This during a long diet can be really helpful. It's not always necessary, but the above benefits can give the diet a bit of a new lease of life and help someone push on who's got maybe 5, 10, 15 kilos more to go on their journey. However, the way I look at a diet break is not a free reign. You still be eating mostly the regular foods that you would generally, but it's just an opportunity to have some extra calories and a couple of relaxed meals here and there. So this is as far as I would go when it comes to taking a break from nutrition during a fat loss phase. When we're looking at training, on the other hand, a planned deload can be helpful from time to time as well. A deload is a period of time where you would either reduce the intensity or the volume of your workouts for a week or so, or a period of days, or you would actually take time off exclusively. And the idea for this one is more to recover from a physiological perspective, and is essentially giving the body and nervous system a chance to fully recover. And I don't use these too frequently, as I find that life usually finds a way of popping these in for us. You know, for example, we train on Monday and Wednesday. We miss Friday's workout, and the next time we train is Monday. If you look at it like that, you've had four days off successively, and that's usually a sufficient amount of time to get that recovery in. Or we go on holiday and we don't train for a few days or the intensity reduces as we don't have access to the same equipment that we would have at home. Or another example of this is there's a seasonal holiday. You know, we're home for Christmas and we take a few days off. These come fairly intuitively, but they can also be planned so that you can take a break from training. However, I'd still encourage some active recovery during your deload, like going swimming, heading on walks, doing some yoga. is not an excuse to be a full sloth, but you know, by all means, if you want to be a sloth, please be a sloth. 
So this is a time where I would advise potentially taking a small period away from your training. So based on both diet breaks and deloads, realistically, these wouldn't be any longer than three to four days for a deload or maybe even a week. And if it's diet break, the longest I go for that is probably two weeks. And if you're in a maintenance phase or a calorie surplus, a diet break wouldn't even be necessary. So the point I'm trying to get at here is why do you need a break? And if you do feel like you need a break, is it because that you don't feel that what you're doing right now is sustainable or it isn't enjoyable? As this is where I feel like that question must come from, or there's a good chance you've not learned how to manage social scenarios effectively and you feel that taking a break would take the pressure off. That's also another consideration. These are, of course, my assumptions. I have to say that. But the reason I started off with the immediate response with why do you need to take a break is because I don't necessarily feel like one would be needed if you're in a sustainable place of your nutrition and training. Let's put it this way. Outside of your fat loss phase, your calories should be in a place where they feel more than comfortable to maintain. So this means you're not limited to a certain amount of foods. And as mentioned earlier, you can always utilize that 70-30 or 80-20 approach to your nutrition. And if you're in a maintenance phase, then every one to two weeks or so, you should be able to comfortably have a relaxed meal out as long as you utilize your good habits that you've built when it comes to portion sizes and intuitive eating. So I'm more than open to be challenged here, but I don't see why you would need to take a break from this. If perhaps you wanted to take a few days over Christmas, or if it's a birthday weekend, then this is totally normal. However, if you feel like you need a few weeks or even months, I question the sustainability of the approach that you're currently following. I think another element to add here uh, when it comes to the nutrition and training side of things could be monotony. Are you still enjoying the foods that you're cooking on a day-to-day basis? Or even are you cooking? You know, that could be also another consideration. Are you making an effort when it comes to the preparation and trying new recipes, etc.? And then let's look at your training. Are you going in hungry to break new records? Are you going through the motions? Are you still doing your cardio on a cross trainer? Or are you finding sports to do that you enjoy instead? When it comes to maintaining things long-term, it has to be somewhat enjoyable. It won't always be that way. Like I love my training, but it's still painful. It makes me sweat more than I'd like to. I get marks on my back from where the barbell is. I have calluses all over my hand. I'm not the biggest fan of all the exercises within my training repertoire, but I do enjoy the progressions I'm making. The fact I'm getting stronger, I'm technically improving on my lifts. And instead of doing traditional cardio, I skateboard and I play basketball, which is way more enjoyable to me. And the final thing I'd look at here is your mindset. Are you still looking at things with an all or nothing approach? Let's say the reason you want to take a break is because you're road tripping with your family throughout the summer months. You know that you won't be able to find a gym, you'll be at other people's homes and in hotels, and therefore you won't have much continuity within your nutrition. And therefore you start thinking, oh, I may as well take time off over the summer, which does seem fairly logical. However, just because you can't go to the gym doesn't mean you can't hike or swim in the ocean during your road trip. Just because you'll be in hotels doesn't mean you can't make good choices when you go to restaurants or order to the room. Just because you can't be optimal doesn't mean you can't drink three liters of water and get eight hours of quality sleep in most nights. You may not be able to make an abundance of progress, but you can definitely maintain or at least keep yourself within touching distance when it comes to your body composition. And not to mention, you'll probably feel better for it and your health will stay in a good place too. I feel like writing off a period of time just because it's not optimal is taking the easy way out and looking at it from the wrong perspective too. 
It's all about making the most of your circumstances versus writing off entirely. And you may even surprise yourself with how much you actually can do. But if you don't even try, you'll never even know how much you can do. And nine out of 10 times, I'd say you'll be surprised with the amount you can. But Elliot, what if I still want to take some time off? And if I'm honest, I do think there are some people in this world who will benefit from periods of doing absolutely nothing. It's just the way that some people's brains work and the period of doing nothing allows them to hit the ground running and feel refreshed again. If I'm not mistaken, I think I remember hearing, he doesn't really need an introduction, but Matt Fraser, who is the five-time fittest man in the world, say that straight after the CrossFit Games, he doesn't do anything. He eats what he wants. He doesn't do any exercise at all until it's time to go again. However, he is an elite athlete. So I do think that you know, exercise isn't going to be the thing that falls off his radar any sign soon. But the reality is, is that a month or so of training isn't going to mean you'll get overweight or lose all your muscle and fitness. Same goes for your nutrition. Although if you do go to the extreme end of the spectrum, you'll be surprised at how much damage you can do. So if you're going to follow that approach, a couple important notes to mention. First, please achieve your body composition goals and be in either a stage of maintenance or muscle building. This is not something you want to do during a fat loss phase. And also have a few years of health and fitness under your belt first. You want those solid long-term habits and rituals locked in place. Otherwise, it could be a slippery slope backwards. So that is my answer for you guys. And that is today's episode. I want to thank you all so much for listening as always. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please screenshot this and tag me on Instagram. I love seeing you guys repost and let me know what part you most enjoyed and took away value from. Also, if you have any questions, you can always ask me on Instagram. Just drop me a DM or email me. So that is everything from me today, guys. Take care and we'll speak very, very soon. And that was the Simply Fit Podcast. I hope you gained a huge amount of value from today's episode. I feel inspired to improve your health and well-being. Be sure to search for Simply Fit in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. And go ahead and subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Also, if you like the episode, please don't forget to give it a five-star rating. I'd love to hear your feedback or any questions you have. So reach out to me on social media. You'll find me on Facebook and Instagram at Elliot Hassoun. Thank you so much for listening. And I look forward to talking with you all on the next one.